You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hi, everybody. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Edlin from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-host and fabulous, fun-loving, fascinating, flamboyant, friendly, I could go on and on, my friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hey, Abby. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey, guys. And we are joined today by Aldu Easterhausen, who actually works with me in Nashville. She has just come on to work for Ovation Fertility. She's our lab director. She has a PhD and she handles all of our little embryos in the lab. And so we were just talking to her. I don't know I'll do very well yet because she just came here in January. So we were talking about some of the interesting things that she does. And she told us, well, you tell us, Aldu, tell us the interesting thing about you that we just talked about. That no one would ever expect from a lab director in embryology. like this. <laughs> and this speaks deep to my heart because I did a lot of this when I was a kid too, but sorry, go ahead. Well, I just want to remind you guys, we are specialists in art, assisted reproductive technologies. So this is a just another way of art you know, when I was very young, so that's a few years back, um, me and my husband, well, he had a, his major was in drama, and I did drama in school, and I wrote little plays and did poetry and all the proses and things like that. And so when I met him, you know, he said, well, he has to be in theater a lot, on the stage a lot, so either I'm going to go with him or I'm going to sit at home waiting on him. So together we did a play on It's Cinderella. It was a children's play. But the fun part of that, there was 120 children taking part in this play. And every one of them had a different individual costume. Wow. So for instance, the ballroom, you know, when they were dancing together, each and every one of those little girls had a different dress. What ages were these girls that were in the girls and boys, I guess, in the play? In U.S. terms, they were primary middle school children. So it's young children. So did you have a background in theater or you just sort of kind of picked up and helped your husband with the play or how did that work? We do have art and drama and musical schools in South Africa. But my dad just said from the very beginning, listen, you're going to do science, biology and Latin and math. <laughs> so I didn't have much of a choice. So therefore we had a drama club. It's like, yes, I do. And I still do drama. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. You know, if nothing else, I'm very stubborn. So there was a drama club and I became chairperson of the drama club. And we actually did quite a few plays that won awards, national awards. 
which I took part of, yeah, while I was in high oh, school. Wow. So that was really great. That's really a fun part, yeah. How fun. You should talk more to John Whitney in Ovation. I don't know if you've talked to him much, but he majored, I believe, in drama. He went to a drama high school in Los wow. Angeles before he went into embryology. So you guys might have a lot in common. <laughs> well, just to tell you, Cherry, our embryology supervisor, she married her husband, which was in a jazz band, and she sang in that band. So we are a lot of very arty people back in Nashville. Yeah, I'm a painter. Those are my pictures back there. So, And I think a lot of people in medicine kind of do both, kind of have sort of an outside thing that they do that doesn't relate to the science that we deal with every day. So, yeah, well, that is very cool. So Susan is looking very excitedly at her computer. I think she's ready to start with the questions of the day. So we're going to do a couple of them, I think. This is a great question. And it's one we've kind of had similar before, but I think it's one lots of people have on the top of their minds. Is it possible to not ovulate with Ovidrol? I had an IUI trigger shot and I did not have my normal post-ovulation symptoms. And I'm worried I did not ovulate. I am taking progesterone supplements, so I can't get blood work to confirm ovulation. Well, you know, there's no way for us to like put a little camera inside your body and know for sure that you've ovulated. I think it would have been nice to be able to check your progesterone. But like you said, if you're on progesterone, there's not really a way to know that. And the poor man's way to know if somebody ovulated is to really make sure that they have a reasonable link from one period to the next. And so there again, if you're on Prometrium, it's probably going to make you have a period. It's really hard to know that unless maybe you had gone in for ultrasound. Usually we feel like if we've looked with ultrasound, there's a good egg there that probably pretty good chance if you get Ovidrill, you're going to ovulate. I think the numbers for Ovidrill, it's like at least 95% effectiveness in getting an egg to release. And, and functionally, I think it's actually probably higher than that. I think a lot of us use meds other than Ovidrill, whether it's Pregnil or other forms of HCG that you can give in slightly higher doses where you just you know flood the receptors. And so there's no doubt with that uh, it ovulated. But you know symptoms are good, but they're not necessarily a an end-all be-all. You know, not everybody has the same symptoms every single month. And that's always hard to tell someone who's pretty attuned to her body, you never tell a patient you're wrong, but it is a fair assessment to say, look, the body doesn't respond the exact same way every single time. So it's possible you ovulate and you're just not feeling it because your symptoms are a little bit different because you are on progesterone and you were on letrozole or clomid or whatever. And so you may not be feeling exactly the same way. And so you ovulated, but it's not marked by the same way that you feel when you're on an unmedicated cycle completely. In the very beginning, we said, look at your temperature. And if there's a spike, then you've ovulated. Well, that's part of the science that you've ovulated. Is is that, you know, still the case or? We can definitely still do that. I think the tricky part about it is it's really a drag to get to make sure you check your temperature every morning before you get out of bed. And plus, the rise in temperature can be so slight, it's kind of hard to pick it up. So I don't know about Carrie and Susan, but most of the time, by the time a patient gets to me, I usually say, let's do something a little bit more cut and dried, some, you know, like check the progesterone level, look with ultrasound or do something like that. But certainly checking your temperature is a good way to start if, you know, somebody's just new to infertility. It's something you have to be proactive about. It's nothing that you could kind of answer at this point. Temperatures are great, but I find it very stressful that the first thing you have to think about every morning is your fertility. And you, like before you even move, you have to grab the silly pink thermometer and stick it in your mouth. Or I'm sure they have ones that you can like zap your forehead with or something like that nowadays. But there's a lot of medications that it's kind of like, well, it may work or it may not work. Avadrel, HCG, 
they work. I mean, it, it is pretty darn reliable. I mean, we hang our hat on that particular category of medications a lot. So I, I would say you may just not have been quite as symptomatic and you probably did ovulate. Are we ready for our second one? We are. All right. Hello, docs. Thank you so much for your advice. I am 15 months trying to conceive. She's 27 on birth control for nine years prior, not ovulating regularly after birth control. After standard blood work, star Povera to induce a period in 50 milligrams of Clomid. Ovulated two of three cycles at 50 milligrams, but no BFP. I then had an HSG, which all came back clear, referred to fertility center thereafter. Clinic induced another period as it hadn't come in 50 days, ran blood work, AMH, estradiol, all that jazz. Everything came back normal. TSH slightly elevated 3.17 for pregnancy purposes. So started low dose with levothyroxine. On month four of timed intercourse with letrozole and Ovidrol shot. Month one had to stair step up due to slow follicle growth. Month two had follicle at 15 millimeters on cycle day 13 and triggered on cycle day 15. Month three, a follicle at 13 millimeters on cycle day 10 and triggered on cycle day 13. Do you think my follicles matured month two and three? Any thoughts on why they are growing slow? Is there something else I can do or test? So it sounds like, and I caught some of those follicle dimensions, it sounds like some of them were just slow and slow growing follicle does not mean you're going to have a slow kid. And so (laughs) that's an important thing to remember. And so sometimes it just means that they haven't gotten the the juice they need to grow more quickly. Like you may be someone who benefits by a higher dose of medication. You may be someone who benefits by a slightly different cocktail. And that's something you don't really know until you're doing trial and error. I definitely have patients where I'm watching their follicles grow and I'm just like, man, we're on our third ultrasound and they're just still not big enough yet. Or it took them that long to get there. And it's just because the amount of FSH that they were being fed just wasn't enough. And maybe the medication protocol needs to be tweaked a little bit. And that can be different from cycle to cycle. You'll have somebody who does beautifully on round one. And then on round two, it just takes forever in a day and you up the dose. And we're always walking that line between getting you enough, but not too much. And so I think it may be related to your underlying infertility reason, particularly people who have... Uh, functional hypothalamic amenorrhea where their brains just don't produce a whole heck of a lot of FSH. In those patients, doing clomid and letrozole is not particularly helpful. You know, some of our PCOS patients, they produce it. They just may need higher medication doses to get what we need. So there's an element of trial and error here. I don't think it says necessarily anything detrimental about your follicles. It just means, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe you need to tweak your medications a little bit. And looking at your prior experience and the dosage you're on will be helpful in saying, yeah, let's add a little bit or no, you're fine. It just takes an extra day or two. And that's an okay thing. What do you guys think? I would say it's time to kick it up a notch. (laughs) In the famous words of Emeril Lagasse, this person has essentially been through like seven cycles. I would be doing kind of a combination approach of oral plus injectable medications. I would probably, even without any obvious male factor, do an insemination, maximize egg and sperm interaction. And if you're not pregnant in a couple more cycles, you might want to think about, you know, other things like IVF. And I know the main question was the slow follicles, 
but you've been through enough of these treatment cycles, you should be pregnant. And we watch people kind of lag along all the time. And if you ovulate, you ovulate. When you're trying to do it on your own, it's hard to plan when's the right time to have this egg sperm interaction, to have sex, all that kind of jazz. But when you're going through monitored cycles, I mean, we're taking out quite a bit of that guesswork. And so, you know, if anything, even for the frustration factor, I would say kick it up a notch. Did she say how many cycles she'd actually ovulated on or just she just mentioned the slow follicles? She ovulated on two of the three Clomid cycles. And it sounds like she's on month four with timed intercourse and letrozole. So she had to stair step, but she looks like she ovulated on all of them. Yeah. So those are still four cycles. So I agree. I definitely would step it up and at least do IUI with it. And I'm like, Susan, you know, you've kind of been at it for a while. So I think at 27, the good news is you're young, but I still think it's time to kind of move on to something a little bit more aggressive. All right. So today, Aldo is going to talk to us about the IVF lab and kind of what goes on behind closed doors. I think we have a lot of patients that they talk to the physicians before they go back for the egg retrieval, and they talk to the embryologist sometimes before and after, but nobody really knows what goes on in the IVF lab. So Aldo is just going to kind of walk us through kind of what happens once the embryo is aspirated and then what happens in the lab. I have found that it's a very stressful procedure in any case. And a lot of the stress and anxiety is because they just don't know what's happening to their eggs and what are we doing, you know. Absolutely. They can't visit the lab and we don't allow visitors in the lab and for a very good reason. And the reason is not because we're so secretive of what we're doing there, but it's just a risk factor that you can bump into people that does not know the flow of the lab. And the other thing, of course, is we don't want any infections in the lab. It's a very clean room. We don't use our outside clothes in the lab. We dress in clean scrubs before we go into the lab. We wear a hairdress. We wear masks. We wear cover shoes. And, of course, wash our hands thoroughly. And that's all because we don't want any infections in the lab. So that's just to answer one question is why we don't allow people in the lab. So we aspirate the eggs, they come to you in a little test tube, and we hand them off to you. And then what's the next step for those eggs when they get into the lab? The next step is treasure hunting. We are actually looking for the eggs under a microscope. So we, we really, we are uh, hunting for those eggs. And as soon as we see an egg under the microscope, and one has to remember, an egg is like very, very small. It's 120 microns in diameter. But luckily, when we get the egg, it's surrounded by a lot of cells. And these cells we call granulosa cells. And these cells are the cells that attach the egg to the follicular wall. So that's the part, you know, you empty the follicle from all the fluid, and hopefully the mature egg should be in that fluid. So is there other stuff in that fluid that you're looking in the eggs? I mean, is it for our listeners, are you looking at kind of like clear waters and poof, you have an egg or is there other stuff (laughs) kind of mixed in there? I wish that would be very nice. Sometimes it's like that. Usually your follicular fluid, the fluid that's in the follicle, you see it on the ultrasound, those little balloons on the ovary. So sometimes those follicular fluid is clear, but clear means it's like a straw color because of the bilirubin in the follicular fluid. So it can be a nice straw color. There could be not a lot of cells in there. And then it's very easy to see your your egg. Sometimes you have a rather bloody fluid. 
And then, of course, there's red blood cells. There's a lot of other cells that is also part of the follicle wall, but it is what we call luteinized cells. And that's not really the beautiful cloud that you're looking for uh, when you look for an egg. So when you're looking at that initial first pass of the fluid's been handed off to you, can you see as you're doing that treasure hunt, oh, we think these eggs are going to be good or we think these eggs are going to be bad based on what the fluid looks like and just the first blush of looking at the eggs? We can't really see the egg. We are seeing a lot of cells surrounding the egg. So it's very difficult to see the egg as such. So the egg's kind of camouflaged with all the cells around it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's hiding from us. So if you look at the cells surrounding the egg, the granulosa cells, they are distributed in a certain manner. So if we call it like a sun streak, if the cells got that sun streak appearance, it's like a sunrise. So then we think of it as a good quality egg. Now, sometimes we see a very, very compacted and dark granulosa cells, the egg surrounding the egg. And then we think, aha, it could be an egg that's overmatured and actually busy degenerating, which we call atritic eggs. And other times we don't see that beautiful sun ray effect, but just as cells loosely packed around the egg. And then we also think, okay, that is also a very mature egg. But you can also see sometimes the granulosa cells with no intercellular spaces. And then we know that might be between immature and almost mature. And what we are very happy to see is those beautiful sun ray effect. But now it's not always the case that the sun ray effect, the the granulosa cells is synchronized with the maturity of the egg itself. Mm. So it can be tricky. We can say, oh, it's actually a good egg. And then in the end of the day, when we really have a good look at the egg, when we get rid of those granulosa cells, it's not a good egg. And that's usually not a very good indication of the patient's response to the stimulation. So when you get the eggs, you take them into the lab, and then when do you start taking the outer layer off so you can really see what the egg looks like? And then when you see that, what's the next step after that? So the egg is a little round fat thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's a chubby egg, and but they're very sensitive, like we are very sensitive, you know, they all say that emails. We're getting so fat, but we're very sensitive from the very start. (laughs) Um, We keep the eggs for at least two hours so that we want to see the eggs to be settled and in a nice environment. And after the two hours, we will disperse those cells surrounding the egg by using an enzyme. So we'll put these eggs with the enzyme and we will, we call it denude. We will take off all the granulosa cells, all the cells. And only then we can actually really see what the egg looks like. It's like embryologist makeup remover. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. I must remember that. Yeah, that's very good. (laughs) When do you introduce the fat chubby egg to its hopefully soon to be partner for the sperm? When When do those two go together? So if you do conventional insemination, you're not gonna remove the granulosa cells. So what's conventional insemination? Conventional insemination is you've actually put the egg and the sperm together. In a Petri dish? In a Petri dish. Years ago, they did use a tiny little test tube. And, you know, there's some places that still use the test tube. 
and put the eggs and the sperm in a test tube. But we are using, or most of us are using a Petri dish. So Petri dish babies are more correct term than test tube babies, right? In some cases, for sure. And there's different ways to do it. You know, you can just have what we call an open culture system. You can inseminate, you know, in a closed system. So there's different ways to do it. But the basic fundamental idea is to put the sperm with the egg. And now it's not just sperm. We prepare the sperm in a certain way so that you select the best possible sperm, good quality sperm. So how do you guys physically take the sperm? Because one way is to put it in a Petri dish and just let the sperm be picked by the culture conditions. The other way is to take one single sperm and put it inside the egg. Can you kind of explain how that works? Yeah. So all those lazy sperm, we're the embryologists, we do their job. So (laughs) we will use a very important equipment, piece of equipment called the micromanipulator. And this micromanipulator is almost like a video game. If you're good in video games, you're good in micromanipulation. (laughs) You have your little eggs in a Petri dish, and then you also have separately in that same Petri dish, but on a separate position, you will have your sperm. Now, under this high magnification and with the help of the two micromanipulators, you're going to, on the one side with a very, very micro tool, stabilize your egg. On the other side, you have a very, very thin needle, glass needle, and it's about seven microns to 10 microns in diameter. And it's got a very sharp spike. So with this needle, you're going to immobilize your sperm and it's also activating the sperm and you're going to pick it up and then you're going to deposit this one sperm inside the egg and you're going to then put that egg again in culture, and then you're going to look for signs of fertilization the next day or 16 hours to 20 hours after injecting the egg. Now, we can't do the fertilization that the egg the sperm has to do it by itself. We can just inject the sperm. So we can bypass all these little hurdles and deposit the sperm directly into the egg, but we can't force fertilization. So does that hurt the egg at all when you are, you know, very deliberately injecting the sperm into it? Does that cause any damage? Well, of course it can cause damage if you don't know what you're doing. But you know what you're doing. So in your case, (laughs) (laughs) you say nobody gets into the lab without knowing what they're doing. Sometimes just the the sheer process of getting (laughs) into the lab requires two or three passcodes and card swipes and other things like that. That's why the training of the embryologist really takes at least a year plus before they can do a proper ICSI. We are very, very strict on embryologists doing an ICSI. So to answer your question is when a small child, they've got that membrane around their their lungs. And for some reason, that membrane gets punctured. Usually after a while, it just closes up right? So the same with the egg. The egg's got a zona, that's a capsule outside the egg that actually protects the egg. And then there's sort of a space, which you call perivitaline space. And then you've got a little membrane, which we call the oelema. And then we have all the good stuff that's inside the egg. So we've got all the organelles, the cytoplasm, and the chromosomes that's right inside the egg. So now if you have a very sharp needle, and you go through the zona, through the perivitaline space, and then 
the oolema, that membrane, and you puncture it and you leave your sperm, you then subtract your needle, then there's no damage because that oolema just closes up like that membrane around the lung of a young child. So obviously, if you have excessive fluid and you put excessive fluid in the in the egg, yes, it's going to die or the egg is going to degenerate, but it's going to die. Now, one must also remember that you can really get poor eggs. And we look at poor eggs, there's certain signs to look at. And there's some cytoplasmic inclusions that you can look at. The inside of the egg can be very granular and brown, and there could be little vacuoles in there or, you know, different kinds of signals that shows you that the egg is not in a very good quality. And those eggs either do not fertilize or they can degenerate. And that's got nothing to do with the person doing the ICSI, but it's because the eggs, unfortunately, are of poor quality. We all know that embryos get graded. And whether grading of embryos has any like implication. Any bearing on reality of what happens. That is a completely additional podcast episode. Okay. But historically, I don't think we've really graded eggs outside of the immature, mature, post-mature stage. Why do we not grade eggs like we grade everything else? Or maybe we did in the past and I'm just not aware of it. So we grade eggs in the sense of, as you said, maturity. That's really the main thing. Maturity is the main thing. A germinal vesicle, metaphase one, metaphase two. So it's actually immature, intermediate and mature. And then you get very mature, which is the atriatic ones. But you see, if you look at an egg, now how are you going to grade an egg in the sense of you see a smooth endoplasmic reticulum? The size of the smooth endoplasmic reticulum is also going to have an effect. Refractile bodies, the size of the refractile bodies will have an effect. You know, if you have larger refractile bodies, you can expect a poorer outcome, right? The granularity Is it very granular in the middle, in the center of the egg? So there's a lot of things that you can look at, but are you going to take the time to measure the refractile bodies? You know, if there's a software system where you can take a picture and it can measure all of that, I'm sure it can work out a grading system and predict what's going to happen. Future of AI. Exactly. So, but the larger the refractile bodies, you know, we know a poorer outcome. If we see smooth endoplasmic reticulums, we also expect a poorer outcome. So along those same lines, and this is kind of moving through to the next stage of when you're going to look at the embryos again, you know, generally we believe that for the first five days, the egg kind of controls the outcome. And would you agree with that in terms of cell division? And if that's the case, why is that? Why does the egg make a difference in terms of cell division and development? Well, I think the egg makes a big difference if you look at almost a normality of your embryo at the end of the day, because the egg is very sensitive to temperature, to pH, to culture conditions, and of course to age. And we know all of that age, poor responders, you know, all got different kinds of eggs. And during that process where the egg mature, that is where it's so important that we have that proper separation of the chromosomes. That's where it starts, that things can go wrong. Mm -hmm. In the end, if you don't have 23 chromosomes in your egg, say for instance, you can have 22 or 24, that already tells you that the embryo 
it's not going to be normal. And of course, the sperm can also be abnormal, right? It could have 22, 25. So the sperm could also be abnormal. So there's a lot of active embryology at the beginning. You're cleaning the eggs, you're inseminating them, whether that's conventional or by ICSI. And then there's a lot of action at the end because that's when you're identifying, okay, this embryo has made the distance, you know, it's gone the distance. It's going to get biopsied for genetic testing, or it's going to be frozen depending on what the plan is. But how much intervention is there in the embryology lab between, you know, those first stages, once you're complete with those, and then the final stages, is there any influence you guys have besides the maintaining of the good environment that it needs with the temperature and the air quality and all of those types of things, the makeup of specific gases? People think the quality control is like you say, the pH and the temperature and this and that. The quality control, if you don't have proper quality control in your lab, you can forget to have good results. That is almost more important than the embryologist. That detailed control, that's a large part of the success um, of your um IVF program. It takes a lot of time for us. It takes over an hour in the morning just to monitor all our equipment. And it's such an important part of the program. So there's different ways that you can look at this. You know that we get an incubator where you can put your embryos in and then you leave it there. And after fertilization, it's put in the incubator and like the embryoscope is one of them and you leave it there. And you can actually see it. it's got a software program where you can see the progress of your embryo, of each individual embryo. So that's one way to do it. And then you will only look at your embryo at the very end of the five days, six days or seven days. So with us, we previously, years ago, you would have looked at your embryo so day one would be fertilization. Day two will be the day where the embryo should be two to four cells. And you will uh, look at them on day two and you will transfer four or five embryos. I don't think Carrie and Susan remember those days, Al, do, but I kind of <laughs> do. I remember. I don't remember day two transfers, but I do remember a lot of day three transfers. I remember those. We did pronuclear transfers in fellowship. Yeah. So we've moved away from that because it's also more expensive. So nowadays... As Abby said, day three embryos, no, we moved on to day five, six, and even day seven embryos. So we can take the embryos out on day three, especially if we're going to do pre-implantation genetic testing. So on day three, you will make a little aperture just to help the embryo to hatch on day five, six, and seven when you're going to do the biopsy if the patients want to do pre-implantation genetic testing. Of course, if the patient does not want to do pre-implantation genetic testing, you do not have to take them out on day three to make a little aperture with the help of a laser. Even though we're all part of, you know, the ovation family that, you know, some of the labs do things differently. We did what you were exactly describing on day three until probably, I actually think it's been almost two years ago, just because time flies so much, especially in the last two years. <laughs> um, but now we take a look at them on day one, the day of fertilization. And we don't look at, even if we're doing PGT, we don't look at them at all until day five. And then at day five, we do the testing or whatever we need to do at that point. Yeah, I would continue to say that every lab does things differently. So it's not to say that like you described now, 
it's working very well in your lab, but we have found it does not work in our lab. And it could be because of the equipment, could be because we're using maybe a different culture medium. It could be because of the people, you know, the way that we work, mm-hmm. our system, our workflow. And that's something that I always say, and I, I preach it all the time. So don't enforce what you have learned in your lab and try and just put it down in another lab and say, we have to do it this way because it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. So yes, you can do it the way that you are describing, not touching them and let them go and leave them alone and only look at them on day five. But you can also, like we are doing, that's you use a continuous medium in your case. With us, we also use a continuous medium, but we have just found if we refresh the medium on day three, we get better results. So Aldo, can you describe how different do the embryos look from day one to day three to day five? What do you see in the lab when you look at the culture of media and embryo in terms of development? We only look at them on day three and then day five, six, seven. But if you want to look at them on day one, you'll find fertilization. And fertilization is where you see that little nucleus of the sperm and the nucleus of the egg. It's like two little eyes looking back at you. <laughs> it Aww. makes you very happy. <laughs> so, And then the next day, you must have like a two to a four cell. That will day two. Day three, you could have a six to a 10 cell. Day four, you can have what we call a morula. And a morula can have lots of cells. It could even be 16 cells. Or those cells, those little cells can start to compact or compact. And then your little embryo is looking like a raisin. So you can't identify the single individual cells anymore. And the next step, which will be day five, will be you're going to see signs of differentiations of two cell lines. And now we also don't really call it an embryo. We call it a blastocyst because now you can see what we call an inner cell mass. It's a clump of cells and those inner cell mass will become the fetus in the end of the day. And you see what we call trophectoderm. That's a network of cells and those cells will do the implantation job. So that's the main difference between the blastocyst and the embryo. I think it's always amazing that it goes from one cell on the day after fertilization to 140, 150 cells five days later. It's truly a miraculous process, I think, for sure. It is. We all want a baby, a healthy baby. But you know, the happiest feeling is when I see such a healthy, happy blastocyst. (laughs) So if someone wants to do genetic testing on the embryo, that's the day, day five, six, seven, when you would do testing, correct? Yeah. And I think also patients do not understand what we're looking at. If we say we can't do a biopsy on day five, we're going to wait till day six, because we are looking at the number of cells too of the trophectoderm because we're just going to take five cells of the trophectoderm. We're not going to touch the inner cell mass. We're just going to take those five cells from trophectoderm. And if we see there's not enough cells, we're going to let them grow another day so that we don't jeopardize uh, the potential of the embryo. And sometimes the embryo is a little bit on the slow side, And there's nothing wrong. Some babies start walking when they're nine months, others when they're over a year. So it's (laughs) it's the same thing. So now the culture conditions are so good that we can still wait another day to day seven. 
Well, very good. We have talked about a lot of information, but I know there's a lot more we could talk about. So we may have to bring you back for another visit, but it's really interesting and fascinating. And I'm like, Susan, I've learned some things in this conversation too, because, you know, as physicians, as clinicians, we handle the clinical side of it and the egg retrieval and the stimulation, but we don't often go into the lab very often and kind of look over our colleague's shoulder to see what they're doing. So it's kind of interesting to hear about the inside of the IVF lab from somebody who's there every day. So uh, any burning questions you guys have before we close? I was going to say nothing that can be covered in a sound bite. Everything else <laughs> is a super in-depth one. Well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this kind of biopsy? And how about that kind of method? And how about this kind of technology? And, and all of those types of things that those are entire episodes unto themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure and subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So hop on and leave us a comment. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye everybody. Today's podcast is also brought to you by California Cryobank. California Cryobank has 45 years of experience and a diverse selection of hundreds of highly screened sperm donors. They maintain the highest quality standards to give clients the best possible opportunity for a successful pregnancy with a client services team that supports you along the way. California Cryobank is offering Fertility Docs Uncensored listeners a special offer of a free level two subscription worth $145, which is a free 90-day subscription for access to extended donor profiles, including adult and childhood photos. Just use the code DOCS, that's D-O-C-S, at cryobank.com to find the right donor for you.